Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey y'all, how are you? Good, great. Doing well, how are you? Can't complain. All right, I think we can uh, we can jump in. So the theme for the week, it seems, is cross-chain interoperability. So we're going to talk um, start by talking a bit about the um, Circle announcement, and then I think we're going to talk about Swift um, and the project that they're working on with Chainlink, and then we're going to um, talk about Cosmos and some of the updates that they're planning there. And then uh, if we have time at the end, I think we'll we'll hear from you, Jason, a bit about um, you know DeFi regulation and what we're seeing there. So. With that, um, before we jump in, Parth, would you like to share a bit about what you tried last week? Yeah, sure. So, uh, so last week I used this thing called the Noob Wallet. And so this was a project which came out of ETH Online Hackathon. Uh, but basically the idea is that you can send NFTs or airdrop something to anyone on the internet without a wallet address. So, so Noob Wallet is a smart contract where you can gift NFTs or airdrops to any social media account like Twitter, Discord, GitHub. And so, so if you want to airdrop your followers on Twitter or you want to send an NFT to your mom's social media account, um, and if she decides to make a wallet address five years from now, the NFT is still intact. And so the reason why I actually used this project was because it's my mom's birthday today. So I, I actually gifted that NFT and hopefully she makes uh, a wallet address um, three or five years from now and then uh, claims the NFT. So how does that actually work though in the background, right? Because like, I think if you know even like 101 level crypto, it's all about having a wallet address, right? And that's mm-hmm. kind of like step one in understanding that. So how how are they managing to do yeah, that? That's a really good question. So. Basically, the idea is that it's a non-custodial smart contract, which latches onto your social media account. So, so if I have, let's say, jasonward.eth, or if I, if on Twitter, if I go by Jason Ward, then uh, my- He doesn't, by the gets, way. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that NFT goes, gets uh, latched onto uh, his Twitter handle. Interesting. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's really neat. I mean, I think it's like a, a pretty significant step forward in terms of like usability. Um, just in the, you know, the simple fact that, you know, wallets are hard and can be very overwhelming for like new users. So you can at least, I don't know, I guess it doesn't really help with adoption from a wallet perspective, but at least gets, um, you know, people onboarded to crypto without having to have a wallet, I guess. Did I dox you, Jason? (laughs) Nope. Nope. I came to the Twitter game late, so it is not my profile. Um, but I have to say part when I was thinking about this, uh, I had other parallels in my mind. So like, you know, many years ago, when my first nephew was born um, or my, my brother's first child was born. I 
basically gave him a, a stock certificate, like one share. He doesn't know how to trade it. He doesn't know anything like that. But like, there's some value that's stored for later. Uh, and they may be able to pick up. But I was also thinking about things like savings bonds. Sometimes people buy savings bonds for somebody else and they don't even know. They have no idea how to actually interact with it until they get to a point where they need to use it. So this could be a really interesting uh, parallel here with the NFTs and the creation of a wallet. So um, it's pretty cool. And, and happy birthday to your mom, Parth. <laughs> <laughs> Good job remembering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, all right. So let's let's jump into some of our interoperability discussion. So Jack, you want to kick us off with Circle? Yeah. So Circle made a, a series of announcements last week um, and really under the theme of interoperability or cross-chain transfers, right? Circle is the company behind USDC, um, which is you know the largest regulated stablecoin, the second largest uh, stablecoin. And really... You know, the idea here is that all of crypto is becoming more cross-chain, right? You're having, you know, more than single singular successful chains, uh, and people want to port value from one chain to another. Um, and so part of this announcement was sort of partnerships, uh, working with a bunch of different groups uh, that are involved in, in cross-chain compatibility. Uh, Axelar, I believe, was one of the groups involved. Layer Zero, uh, which does things with uh, stablecoin cross-chain messaging. Uh, they were another one involved, uh, among others. Um, and really the idea is, can I take my $1, uh, my one USD from Ethereum's blockchain and move it to Avalanche's blockchain you know, easily? Right. Interoperability should be about doing it in an easy way. And granted, I think the major caveat here is it's still relatively trusted in the fact that you're using a fiat backed centralized stablecoin and Circle is, uh, you know, recognizing that you're wanting to destroy one USDC on Ethereum uh, and create one USDC on Avalanche, for example. Um, but still, you know, there is going to be trusted interoperability and there's you know going to be likely trustless interoperability uh, and this is you know a major stepping stone from a major player in the space uh, on top of this announcement they announced that they're moving from I think they're on nine blockchains right now including ethereum Solana um, polygon uh, a few others um, but nine today they added five to the list in terms of between this year and next year that they're trying to get to uh, two more scaling solutions on ethereum arbitrum and optimism uh, and then three other ecosystems near Polkadot, uh, and then i think down the line cosmos as well um, so i think again just a major signal from one of the largest companies in the space uh, that the future is multi-chain yeah yeah, I just want to add in one thing real quick here. So so as much as we hate to admit it, the, the most real use case of DeFi is using a centralized stablecoin, right? Because that's how you store most of your money if you don't have an active strategy, right? So I think this is great news, especially for uh, Cosmos, Polkadot, and Near. Uh, so if you go on the Cosmos ecosystem right now, there are a bunch of like really weird options of storing uh, a stablecoin. So you could do USDC through Axelar, uh, which is a cross-chain message-based bridge, uh, or you ha used to have USD uh, out of Terra, which was another stable coin. Uh, we all know what would happen to USD. So, so I think Circle coming in uh, and sort of filling that gap, it's a really big deal. And so also, if you guys remember a few weeks ago, we spoke about how 
DYDX is moving to the Cosmos ecosystem and they haven't launched yet on the Cosmos ecosystem. So DYDX is an app chain uh, and they are a huge user of USDC, right? So DYDX and at one point was doing 4.3 billion US dollars in 24 hours, which was more than Coinbase at the time. So I think this is, you would see more flourishing uh, uh, DeFi dApps on, on Cosmos near and Polkadot. So I, I sort of take that theme and think about it as, regardless of who you are, you're seeking to make your, uh, your tools as widely available as possible. And I, I do think with a, a multi-chain future, you have to solve for those questions of, can you create uh, that asset or that capability natively on the chain? And when you can't, you know, what are the tools that you use? So you mentioned, um, I think you, meant, you may have mentioned bridging, but you've also mentioned um, the, uh, the Cosmos ecosystem being a, a slightly different type of interoperability uh, in past, uh, past recordings. But what I think is really kind of interesting is taking it to, uh, to, back to the TradFi for a moment here, we saw uh, an, an announcement at SmartCon, uh, I think it was last week, uh, and SmartCon is a conference that was hosted by Chainlink, and Swift, which is uh, one of the world's largest, I'll call it decentralized networks, but it's certainly centrally operated and maintained, announced that they were going to be working with the, the cross-chain interoperability protocol, um, which was something that Chainlink announced back in August of 2021. So, why is it really important? It's, it's because Swift operates a network that's used by over 11,000 entities around the globe. You've got banks and investment managers and other actors that uh, across 200, I think it's 204 countries that um, basically make up the Swift network. So whether you're talking about instructing for cash payments or security transactions, a lot of people understand Swift as a, as a messaging protocol. And they, they basically create rails where ISO formatted messages can be transacted. And if you've been in the, the traditional financial space for a while, you get to understand that Swift operates using binary keys and people can communicate back and forth over the protocol uh, with these messages because they have these connection points. So I was trying to dig a little bit into what this cross-chain interoperability protocol was going to be. And they basically describe it as... Um, a way of creating a smart contract that allows for the creation of multiple smart contracts on multiple chains. But they're supposed to be uh, distinct bridges. So party A can communicate with party B without it necessarily being known to party C. And which I, I think, I haven't quite fully vetted it yet, but I think it's really interesting because the whole point of the SWIFT announcement was talking about using CCIP as a proof of concept to test movement of security tokens. Or I should say tokens. They didn't necessarily describe securities, but I'm making the assumption that it would include security tokens, maybe some other tokens as well. So so what do you think the end game is here, Jason, like for Swift? Because obviously, as you highlighted, you know, multinational entity that really specializes in the movement of value across borders, right? And in this case, it, it seems to me that they're talking about the movement of value across different networks and chains, right? Is that, you know, does that seem like the next step to their business? I mean, obviously, the, the theme of the day is interoperability. Um, and, and basically, what they do in, in TradFi is make different currencies, different networks more interoperable. Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. And I, I would speculate personally that Swift is looking and saying, okay, if there are 
entities around the world, like central securities depositories, that are talking about having support for tokenized assets, whether they be a native security token offering or a digital twin of some other off-chain asset. They want to be involved in the communication of those transactions because that's where they live today. So I would look at it as additive to their business and thinking about um, over time, how do they continue to support some of their larger clients? And again, I, I based my speculation on reading about and, and learning about DTCC's Project Ion, which is creating digital twins of equities that are held in the depository. But there, there'll be things like delivery versus payment transactions when you have tokenized cash. And, and DTC has something called Project Lithium. But around the world, we're seeing security tokens transacted against stable coins. So I think it's really looking at how do you protect your existing business and how do you position yourself for additive services uh, based on the trend or the potential trend uh, that blockchain can enable. This will be an interesting one to watch as it evolves because I do think that, we just spoke about it last week, right? But when we think about the trend of TradFi moving into DeFi and into digital assets more broadly, right? There are a couple of you know key entities that have always been kind of centralized around certain functions, right? DTC, Swift. Um, and so I think their movements into this space will be kind of have pretty heavily watched. All right, um, I think we can move on. So Parth, um, I think this is a good good opportunity for us to talk about Cosmos. Um, it seems like there's a lot happening there. So do you uh, do you mind giving kind of a brief overview of what we're um, seeing and hearing? Yeah, sure. So um, so just to give you some context, um, Cosmos SDK. Um, has sort of paved a, a way for a lot of blockchains, right? So Cosmos SDK is an implementation to a consensus protocol called Tendermint, which basically lets you spin new blockchains, right? So the whole, the core ideology of Cosmos ecosystem is that users do not necessarily come to layer ones. They come to applications, right? So people do not want to use uh, Google Play Store or App Store, but you want to use an application in in that store. So you want you want to use Lyft or you want to use Uber, and so you find a way to get there. And so the application is where you have the most amount of user stickiness and some sort of following. Uh, and so so basically, the Cosmos ecosystem has they always say that they reject the FAT protocol thesis, which basically means that users come to applications and not like layer ones. Now, Cosmos has pioneered in, in a lot of technologies. Uh, one of them is called IBC, which we've spoken about in the past. IBC stands for um, Inter-Blockchain Communication, which lets different blockchains talk to each other natively, right? So, so for an example, um, Osmosis is one of the first decentralized exchanges to use IBC, where you can swap any token, just like you can swap on Uniswap. However, the major unlock is that you can pay the gas fee or transaction fee in any IBC-enabled token. So it does not have to be Atom or Osmo. It could be in USDC. It could be in something else. So I guess the step one was um, make Cosmos SDK, uh, which makes spinning up new blockchains much easier. Step two was how do you communicate between these blockchains? So that's why they created something called as IBC. And step three is where we have seen the most number of announcements and most innovation in the Cosmos 2.0 paper, which basically talks about interchain accounts and interchain security. So what interchain accounts really means is that it means chain A can make a state change of another contract on chain B without moving funds. So interchain security, think of it this way, it sort of enables uh, people to focus on just on the app idea 
and you can sort of lease security from the big Cosmos chains instead of uh, and also get some sort of rewards. So, so one analogy which I had in mind was it's kind of like the NATO, right? So every country is sovereign; they do their own thing, uh, but they have some sort of shared security because of um, Article Five. So that's sort of the analogy which I—that's the mental model that I, that I have. Uh, but that was majorly the update. So, Parth, what you're basically you're saying is, you know, when you talk about the SDK, that's a software development kit, but you're saying it's now easier for people to be able to focus on that next layer because this technology is sort of solved for that underlying aspect of, uh, I want to build a house, but I don't necessarily need a foundation because the foundation's there. I can just focus on the design of everything above the foundation because that's already taken care of. Is that a good way to think about it? Exactly that, yes. So the idea is that uh, developers should now be focusing just on the app idea without worrying about security or cross-chain communication. And so, and there is obviously more to the paper. So it's a 51 page document. It's obviously got more details, but it also talks about tokenomics of Atom, right? So that's the, that's the Cosmos uh, coin. And so, um, so you would sort of assume that if you like the Cosmos ecosystem, you would bet on Atom, but that wasn't really the case because the Cosmos ecosystem has hundreds of blockchains and each of them have their own coins. But after the introduction of the Cosmos 2.0 white paper, that's changing. So, so they are changing tokenomics on how um, Atom can be used for interchain security and liquidity staking and how the um, Atom might go to an inflation which is less than 1%. So originally it was sort of thought, so Atom was almost sort of a meme coin with no utility in the Cosmos ecosystem. But now they're adding more utility to, to the token. Yeah, Parth, this gets into... Um what I think is interesting is like this whole like network versus asset piece. And like, maybe it was like a year ago or so people were sort of joking around that cosmos is really innovative as an ecosystem. And like tons of apps could be built on cosmos, but because they're sort of like basically using the the technology that's been built, but using it for their own, you know, self-worth or self good, like the atom token could be, you know, not very successful from an investment perspective, but the ecosystem itself could be thriving, right? And like this tokenomics piece, the asset versus the network, like you can see the network do really well, uh, but the asset maybe sort of trail because just it's not necessarily embedded within the success of the project, right? Like sort of tokenomics is. Um, but now you're seeing this sort of, and it's almost like a copy of like the idea that Ethereum was so focused on its network and then sort of changed its focus with things like EIP-1559, the introduction of, of token burning, right? And then you have this sort of struggle between the network and the asset and what's, what are we building here? What's it all about? You can kind of see some of this happening with Cosmos with sort of this recent discussion around, you know, changing the tokenomics of Atom to make them potentially favorable going forward in the future. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's face it, like Cosmos ecosystem has made some huge like tech contributions. So if you think about Polygon, uh, which is a very successful blockchain now, uh, Polygon used to use the Tendermint protocol for consensus, right? Or the proof of stake environment, which we just spoke about uh, for Ethereum, was first used by the Cosmos ecosystem. Or, or if you talk about privacy at the base layer, you have a lot of new privacy projects like Penumbra or the Secret Network, and all of them use the Cosmos SDK. Um, so it's, so they have widespread adoption, uh, and now they are planning to add utility to their to their native token. Yeah, I think the, the piece of this that 
interests me the most is, is around the security, right? Because I think it, it's twofold. The first, to your point, Parth, it enables developers to focus less on kind of the foundation of the house and more on kind of designing the house itself and, you know, the applications that they're developing, which, of course, you know, the more apps that are kind of novel or, you know, deliver the most value or utility, of course, it's going to be a net positive for the Cosmos ecosystem in general. I think on the other side of that coin is just around kind of the potential downsides of having bad security on some of these networks, right? And so I think, you know, when when there's, as we know, and it's been pretty well documented here and in other places, you know, these assets, these networks are not easy to secure, right? And and hacks are constantly happening. And I think when that happens, to some extent, it undermines whatever kind of platform it's built on top of, right? Because I think there's kind of this presumption that maybe there's a flaw or there's, you know, bad security practices when it's not necessarily the case, as I think we're, we're talking about here. So by having kind of a standard you know, standard level of security and framework for security across all of the networks, I think it kind of just helps kind of bolster the security of all of all of the the um, different chains built on top of Cosmos. Yeah, to your point, it's there's sort of this interesting uh, observation that you have with like, what's the actual use of blockchain? Well, at the end of the day, it's really for the applications, right? Or what you can actually do with this stuff. And, you know, Bitcoin has its its store of value, medium of exchange use case, right? But everything else that we're building here has applications on top of it, right? There's added complexity and then there's applications on top. And so when you're an application in its early days, like, should you be focused on bootstrapping your own security, i.e. building your own layer one security module, or should you be focused on building a useful application? You should probably be focused on building a useful application because a lot of people are focused on that and there's already chains that are secure, right? So enter interchain security. But then eventually you reach this point where we have a really useful application and at some point there's like, uh, you know, some sort of juncture or turning point where it's like, well, why am I paying all of these fees to secure this network when I could spin that up myself. And that's sort of this whole trade-off. And I think what Cosmos is really going for is like in your nascent stages, you could borrow or lease this security. And then over time, it does make sense if you're large enough and you have the user base to then, you know, form your own security, you know, module, right? And then you, and then you can accrue those fees to your token holders or to your chain in some way, rather than paying, you know, the base layer of Ethereum in order to do it for you. Yeah. And I think like the earliest adopters, right? So the earliest adopters, crypto native, likely very tech savvy, if not, you know, developers themselves, like security was a feature, right? Like, and that was, there was a fair amount of utility in that in itself. But when we think about, when we think about kind of mass adoption of crypto, right? And and more and more people using these networks, so like security is just going to become an assumed fe- feature, right? It's like, if you download any like FinTech app or, you know, even in, in TradFi with brokerage or banking, like, you're not thinking, oh, should I go to X bank or Y bank because one is more secure than the other? You're looking, okay, who has the best kind of feature set? Who's, you know, paying the most interest on deposits? You know, things like that, right? Like, I think it just becomes assumed that the security is built in. And I think like your standard user is not necessarily going to think about it in the same way that, you know, the the first and second and third waves of crypto adoption that we've already seen have, right? Um, I think it's just going to become something that fades into the background. And again, I think the standardization here kind of helps with that, right? And, and maintains that, you know, 
helps maintain the, the consistency and the quality across the different um, applications. Yeah. Before before we jump to like DeFi regulation, I just have like this, like, uh, so I have a hot take, but basically I think the bridges that you see now will sort of cease to exist by the next bull run. So this mechanism, which Chainlink has of CCIP or Axlar using cross-chain messaging, uh, these are inherently relatively more secure. And so the whole idea of trusting bridges and trusting third parties by locking or burning your funds is a terrible UX, and it also leads to many hacks. So so that's what Chainlink, uh, Axlar, uh, IBC, they're all pioneering in. Um, so hopefully we see a change in that. So there, you're saying there will really be like an evolution of the types of bridges that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Parth, we've, we've got it timestamps. So we'll come back to you on this. Uh, don't know the time frame, you know, so you, you definitely have some interesting takes on it, but I have to tell you guys, listening to you guys talk about that, uh, I was harking back to Plato's Republic. And I think you guys just made the argument for specialization. So, you know, we'll bring it back to philosophy because that's really what you're, you're kind of talking about. And, you know, I, I think Ryan, we were going to talk really quickly about DeFi. Um, I had the opportunity to join a panel last week at Boston FinTech Week with some other folks trying to answer the question, is DeFi revolutionary or risky? And I, I think the answer is both. But what we saw last week too was uh, Chair Powell was speaking at an event hosted by uh, the Bank of France. And he talked about needing to have um, appropriate regulation, but also about being, doing so in a, in a careful way in I think it was very interesting that the, the chair was focusing on understanding where there are opportunities for regulation that, that are meaningful and may, maybe need to be prioritized versus other areas where they might not want to step in and regulate immediately because they want to actually foster growth. So I thought that was an interesting take. But uh, the chair basically said um, that within the DeFi ecosystem, there are some very significant structural issues around transparency. And I think for a lot of folks who just dive in on the blockchain side, what do you mean issues with transparency? This is incredibly transparent. We've got a ledger. We can see every single transaction. But I think the reality is that uh, there are some parts of the DeFi ecosystem that aren't really as transparent. And while I, I certainly appreciate and respect the chair's comments, I thought maybe just putting it into context for a moment uh, for those who might argue that everything is transparent. Um, we saw over the weekend that there was some additional news around uh, the Celsius protocol, so Celsius, which was a centralized lender. Um, you know, last week, the, the CEO stepped down. Uh, then a couple of days later, we saw that Celsius stated that they were no longer going to seek to enforce payment on obligations from borrowers during their Chapter 11 bankruptcy. That was on uh, Friday, the September 30th. But then we heard over the weekend that the CEO had actually taken a $10 million withdrawal from the platform in May about a month before we saw uh, that the client accounts were frozen and, and basically two months before they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So here's an activity where it's uh, transparent in terms of transactions on the ledger, but how the operation was running was not as transparent as perhaps could be. So we do think about like publicly traded equities and in, in, in companies like that. You know, insiders are required to disclose their transactions and their events. And the CEO team says he had taken the withdrawal to pay for taxes and all. So there's no judgment on the CEO actions. It's just showcasing that there are different uh, practices today in DeFi versus uh, traditional finance. But what I did think uh, was a key message that Chair Powell mentioned is same risks, same regulations or same protections. 
But I think that's an area where we're going to have to continue to evolve. To your point, Jason, just because the the underlying ledger is open and permissionless and has a high level of transparency doesn't necessarily mean that the applications or companies um, that are built on top of it have that same level of transparency. And I think that's kind of something, especially in DeFi, that we're going to need to watch pretty closely because, to your point, like the governance rails don't yet exist. Hopefully, um, at some point, we'll get more clarity and there will become, you know, greater standards there. But for the time being, it's still, um, you know, a little less uh, transparent and a little less structured in that sense. Yeah, but it's it's absolutely revolutionary. You know, we see 24 by 7 markets. We saw very uh, well-functioning DeFi protocols that enforce liquidation. So there wasn't a massive contagion when we had the, the collapse of Terra. But I think, you know, people need to better understand if there is an entity that's offering you upwards of 18.6%, you have to ask, how are they actually generating the income on the other side to be able to pay that, that type of return? And I think that's where we could use some additional transparency around business models. And you know, perhaps they had significant exposure to Terra. I think you know, a lot of folks can go back and do the forensics on that. But if one side's paying 20% and other side's paying 18.6%, you may need to peel the onion back, not just to the interaction that you have with a particular protocol or, or lender. Find out how are they getting business? Where's their counterparty credit risk? How do you dig into that systemic generation of the income and basically find out while it is revolutionary, what are the risks? So as an investor, you are informed. And I think that's the angle that regulators are going to try and um, push for is greater information for consumer protections. Yep. Yep. All right, all. Thanks for a great discussion this week. Um, And for everyone else, we will see you next week. Have a good rest of your week. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Take care. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.